When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The presenting sponsor of today's podcast is Fifth Element CBD. Fifth Element is ultra-high milligram CBD focused on relief and recovery after a workout. They are specially designed for people with an active lifestyle from weekend warriors to professional athletes to bucket list gym enthusiasts. Fifth Element, a.k.a. 5E, is full-spectrum high-milligram hemp to help you whenever, wherever you need it, whether it's after the gym or after work. Get yours today to feel better tomorrow by visiting 5ehemp.com and use the promo code MONSTER for 50% off. Yes, you heard that right. 50% off. Half off. That's 5ehemp.com and use the code MONSTER. Go to 5ehemp and get 50% off. That's the number 5, the letter E, hemp.com. Welcome back to another episode of An Over the Monster podcast. Uh, We are back with you, uh, as I'm sure you guessed and also know because you read the title of the podcast, I guess. Uh, We are previewing the ALCS where the Red Sox somehow are going to be playing. Uh, They're heading down to Houston to start that series on Friday. Take on the Astros. Um, Fifth time in a row the Astros have been in the ALCS, so we are going to talk about that team and everything you need to know about the series coming up. It is uh, myself, Matt. I am back with Keaton and Bob, and we are going to get you guys uh, all settled up for the series. Uh, Keaton and Bob, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Keaton's yeah. doing a little better than Bob, I guess. Doing good. Doing great instead of good. So. Fired up. Uh, we'll get that to start off with. Um, he did so say before more we get into the though. ALCS and what to expect from this. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, <laughs> but if somebody's reading transcription, they're yeah. not going to know that. I said so. I was more fired up. So um, before we get to the ALCS and before I was rudely interrupted, um, <laughs> should go over a little bit about the ALDS, um, mostly about the Red Sox race series, maybe about some of the stuff that in general that we've seen, um, some lessons maybe that we've learned about. This postseason, postseason in general, the Red Sox specifically, the Astros specifically, um, just kind of broader points like that. Um, either of you have anywhere you want to start? I know I had a couple things I want to mention, but any of you, either of you guys have anything that stands out to you? I think the thing that stands out for me is when this Red Sox team is healthy and has their full complement of players, they can hang with any team out there. Um, 
over the second half of the season, uh, or the first half of the season, they were incredibly healthy. They had really great luck. The second half of the season, they ran into uh, a bit of an injury bug and as well as that COVID mishap thing. But they were able to get healthy right before the playoffs. And having uh, a healthy team in the playoffs, is they've been a force. So I think having this team be healthy and hopefully you know avoid any major injuries here makes me confident that they can hang with the Astros in this series. Yeah, for me, I think kind of with playoff experience, really there was uh, just for both teams. You know, in the preview, we talked about the starting pitching for Tampa Bay and how pretty much outside of McClanahan pitching in relief that there wasn't really any experience there at all. And a lot of them were rookies or they hadn't pitched before. And I think experience with Tampa playing in Boston in that atmosphere, um, as well as just being able to handle the moment. And I couldn't believe when I heard how many games that Kike Hernandez had played in the playoffs. It was like something like 63 or 65 for the Dodgers. Um, And guys like Kyle Schwarber and the way that they stepped up in big moments. And I think of Tampa choosing to roll with, you know, after Glass now, you know, they traded Snell. Glass now got hurt. And the only playoff veteran pitcher they had was Rich Hill and they chose to trade him and I feel like they really could have used a guy that could give three or four innings whether it was as a starter or in relief like Hill um, someone that had been there for a staff like that and I think it kind of worked to the Red Sox advantage and against the Rays even though I know a lot of those players had yeah, been mean, in the playoffs thinking, last year but um, they have so much turnover similarly, year that so uh, many more, had. less about I guess the Rays lack of experience and more about the Red Sox experience and I mean, you touched on that with Hernandez and Schwarber, and I just think overall the way that they, the way that this lineup can, not always does, but can just totally wear down a pitching staff. Um, I mean, even game one against the Rays, obviously the Red Sox didn't score any runs, but they didn't look like that kind of offense that we see sometimes where they just fall into swinging at the first pitch and rolling it over for a nothing ground ball and just non-competitive at-bats. I mean, when this offense is locked in, um, there isn't really a pitching staff that can hold them in, and I mean, I think if anybody could have, it would have been Tampa. So um, I think that's sort of what I maybe not what I learned, but what I'm going to look for more um, keenly because if this offense comes out in that first game, even if they don't score, but they're working good at bats and hitting the ball well and um, doing all that good stuff, I mean, I think we can be confident moving forward. But there are a few days off, and we know that this lineup goes hot and cold, and they go through those spells of not looking like that. So I'm really just kind of looking for what the offense is going to look like right off the bat, and hopefully they look like they did in that Tampa series because, I mean, that they were just grinding. I mean, I usually don't like using that word, but they, they were just grinding at bats and just grinding down the Tampa pitching staff. And I think I think maybe they didn't get enough credit for that um, nationally because a lot of the f- attention went to the Rays pitchers not getting it done, but to me it felt like the Red Sox offense just was getting it done. So, I mean, that's the Red Sox-Rays series. As far as the White Sox-Astro series went, that was a little bit of a different kind of series. They both went four games, but the Red Sox raise, I thought, was... I mean, it was mostly very competitive. The Red Sox had a little bit of a blowout win there, but that was... Um, it definitely seemed like teams on the same playing field. The Astros-White Sox, I think it was a little bit different. The Astros sort of... Uh, 
enforce their will a little bit more, and I thought they looked like a little bit more of a dominant team. But, Bob, um, was there anything specifically that stood out to you from that series? Just clutch hitting and the same guys that we've been watching for five or six years now. Um, you know, there was a lot of days that were three and four games at the same time, so it was kind of flipping back and forth, and especially the Sox game that went late. Didn't see a whole lot of that one, but it was every time with two outs and runners on base, it was Altuve and Brantley and Bregman and Alvarez and Correa and Gurriel, and we're going to talk about the lineup a little bit, but there are no breaks, and they all seem to you know, rise to the occasion and do what they've been doing for five years, and um, it was just the same old, and ended up being a, a couple of runaways in the process. What about you, Keaton? So kind of the the exact same thought. There's Bob just on the other side of the ball. Like I mean, the Astros pitching has been pretty strong here in recent years, and to hold that White Sox offense in the three games the Astros won to to two runs a game is pretty darn impressive because that offense is tough to beat and tough to really kind of keep down. So it's yeah, I had the same cool. exact feeling just on the other side of the ball. I think that leads up to what we already expected was like this is going to be a really tough series because the Astros are a pretty well-rounded baseball team yeah and I mean their their offenses I mean like Bob said they have so many of these guys that we've seen um for these last few years but they also are starting to get uh new players on both sides I mean offensively Kyle Tucker is the obvious one um he's not an entirely new player he's played sort of a part-time role before this year but he's really gotten to flourish and in the second half he's the third best hitter in baseball by WRC plus only um only Soto and Bryce Harper had better second halves than him um and then on pitching side I mean it's a totally different rotation than what we've gotten used to like Keaton said I mean these guys are just they're scary good and um I mean, well, we're going to get to this stuff more specifically in a second, but the Red Sox have some exposure to them this year, and it did not go well. So, um, yeah, to me it was, I mean, all the all the uh, normal, obvious faces that we've gotten used to, but it's the fact that they just, like, keep bringing on these new players, um, whether it be somebody like Tucker or somebody like Framber Valdez or whoever it is. Um, it doesn't seem very fair. I'm, I'm not a fan of them being able to do this. I don't know who allowed this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's worth starting to go over, uh, this roster more specifically. We can start with this offense. The Astros had, I mean, they were the best lineup in baseball, um, for the most part this year. They led the league average, uh, OPP runs. They were second at OPS. Um, they had a 116 WRC plus in the season, which as a team is just absolutely absurd. Um, and just looking down this lineup, I mean, I think it, I don't know if I would say one through nine. It's scary. I mean, the bottom couple of spots, um, they're not bad, but they're not sort of elite hitters. But one through seven, I mean, I think you have an argument that these are just terrifying elite-level hitters. Every spot, you have Altuve, you have Michael Brantley, Alex Bregman, Jordan Alvarez, Yuli Gurriel, Carlos Correa, Kyle Tucker. I mean, Kyle Tucker, like I said, second-best hitter in the second half. He's been batting seventh uh, for a lot of these games. Um, I mean, Keaton, I guess... Is there anyone specifically that stands out to you? Is there, I mean, is I, this lineup obviously as a whole is scary, but um, like what specifically is is something that you're watching for with this group? So a little bit, maybe not as flashy as those top names, but Yuli Guriel is just consistently really strong at getting on base. And having a guy like him at the, you know, the bottom of the lineup to keep innings going, keep runs alive, turn it back over to the meat of the order at the top, uh, is a pretty strong weapon. 
uh, and it just it's not going to be an easy run from you know one through nine here for the Red Sox pitchers. But if they're able to maybe contain him and you know deaden some of this action here at the bottom of the lineup, then I think that's going to go a long way for the Red Sox pitchers. So a little bit off of the beaten track of those names, but uh, just kind of shows the depth that this this offense has. Yeah, definitely. And he's like right, right in the middle there. So yeah, he's sort of the bridge between two halves. Um, what about you, Bob? Yeah, it's a great call with Gurriel there. I mean, he's 37 years old and his OBP was 383 this year, the highest yeah. out of anybody that we're talking about here. And he strikes out only 11% of the time. And that's a theme. I mean, Bregman, 13%, Altuve, 13%, Brantley, 10 Tucker, 15 These guys don't strike out and you're not going to get you're going to get balls in play way more than you saw in the last series. Um, the other stat you mentioned, WRC plus, uh, Matt. Every single one of their regulars is well over the league average in WRC plus. Tucker by forty-seven percent. Uh, you know, Alvarez, Correa, Gurriel by more than thirty percent. And Altuve, even their eight hitters, um, which are either Myers or McCormick, they're both above average as well. So it is. You got a couple of bench bats with the same thing. It's like 10 guys that are above league average. And Kyle Tucker hits seventh most days, sometimes sixth. But I forgot to mention that name when I first was going through those, and I'm glad you pointed that out because he hit seventh, and in a lot of different metrics, he was their best hitter this year. So it's just there are no breaks until you get to Maldonado at nine. Uh, he's really the only the only break that you get. And if it's one hitter, it's not a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Every National League team in baseball deals with that. Um, right. There's some good lineups over there. Yeah, I mean, this lineup is I, – I, you nailed it with the strikeout thing. I mean, it's just – it's not something you see in today's game. Um, not just not striking out, but also hitting for power. I mean, you got um, Tucker, Correa, Altuve, all with strikeout rates under 20% and all with ISOs over 200. I mean, that's just unheard of. Um I don't really know how how they're even doing this. I mean, Michael Brantley um, was the guy that I always kind of think about in this lineup. And similarly similarly to what uh, Keaton was saying with Gurriel, uh, Brantley is not the best hitter in this lineup. Um, he's worse than Gurriel by WRC+, Plus, but just his ability to put everything in play. Um, he seems like a guy that's going to be able to kill the Red Sox just because the Red Sox defense isn't very good and it's not a good combination to have a team that puts everything in play and a defense that doesn't really do very well with the balls in play. Um, this team is obviously at their best when they're missing bats and not having to play defense. So this is a tough matchup in Brantley, um, just particularly because he also doesn't walk. So pretty much all of his at bats are going to end with balls in play. He seems like a guy that can, um, really have a big breakout here. Old school two hitter. I feel like, and he does it in the two hole for them. Yeah, he's uh, very out of, like, 1985, for sure. Yep. Um, and it's funny, because, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the big the names that everybody thinks of. The Astros, it's just, I mean, they're still there. Bregman, Bregman didn't uh, play all year. He only played 91 games. He never really like, totally got going like we know he can, but he's obviously still scary every time he gets in. Um, Correa's playing like he wants to get $400 million this offseason, um, and... <laughs> Altuve is Altuve, and yeah, I mean these. This lineup is just good, um, and I, I I don't really know <laughs> what else to say. They're just deep and they're good. Um, either of you, Keaton, have uh, have anything else to add? 
I don't think so. Bob? I think you nailed it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it, like I said, it's it's not fair. And then moving on to the rotation, um, this is the part of the team that doesn't really look like it has for a lot of this dynasty, but it is still, I, I don't know if we're calling them a dynasty. I don't want to give them that shine. But <laughs> whatever we're calling this group of Astros players, um, their rotation is very good this year. Um, it's top five starting pitcher, ERA, uh, pretty much top five across the board. Um, their peripherals were never really that good, which I think makes it seem obviously like their defense is very good. Um, but I mean, the bottom line is they've just been able to keep runs off the board in their top three. Um, Lance McCullers, Luis Garcia, Framberg Valdez. I mean, all three of these guys are outstanding. Um, I don't know who's pitching fourth games for them. Do Do you know Bob? Would it be Granky or would it be well Rikiti? Granky's been has been hurt, and I think that he just threw an inning or two in relief. Now I know he threw the most innings overall um, throughout the course of the season, but the vibe that I'm kind of getting when I hear his name is just as an afterthought, more of like a last pitcher on the roster uh, coming off of injury kind of thing. So I don't know how much they're expecting out of him. I, I'm expecting Urquidy, and um, you know I think we'll probably talk about it, but whether McCullers is in there or not, they might need another arm, and yeah, maybe in that case they might need the tandem Grinky with somebody. Yeah, so the McCuller one, that's a big one. He started game four for the Astros, the game they clinched. Uh, he got taken out a little bit earlier than people expected. Turns out there was some injury issue there. Um, has some forearm tightness. I don't think we know the extent. Um, teams aren't going to show their hand until they absolutely have to. Um, but this is a guy who's coming off Tommy John a couple of years ago. Forearm tightness is never a good thing. So that's definitely something to watch, and that would be, I mean, obviously you're never rooting for injury, but that would be a big break for the Red Sox. This is the one guy that's a holdover from the World Series team. Um, very famously through, I don't remember how many curveballs, but like 50 of them in a row or something like that um, during that <laughs> run. Um, so that would be a big deal, but the issue is these other guys are very good, and um, I know the guy that kind of stands out the most to me is Valdez um, just because the Red Sox have seen him twice this year and got shut down by him twice this year. Um, his curveball in particular, they just had absolutely no answer to. So um, I'm expecting they're going to see a whole lot of curveballs from him and they're going to need to prove that they can get to it right away because if not, it could be tough. And if with McCullers out, he would probably be starting the first game. So Valdez is, Valdez is the one that stands out to me. Um, Bob, anybody in particular it could be Valdez too, or any other of their starters, or anything just about this rotation in general that sticks out. Yeah, I have a few thoughts. Kind of starting with Valdez, you mentioned the curveball. Really, nobody hit the curveball. He had a 125 batting average allowed, and he he uses that pitch 31 percent of the time. So it is an elite pitch. He only had one home run all year on that pitch. So if he gets ahead, he's going to be burying you with that. And yeah, I think he went into the seventh, eighth inning in a couple of starts against Boston and. He can certainly do that, um, and I think it helped. You know, they don't have as good a bullpen as Tampa Bay, so he's definitely a pitcher that they're going to want to get deep into the games. Um, along with that, they have Luis Garcia, they have Urquidy, who um, you know didn't make a start in that series, but they really only needed three. And the guy that I like is Christian Javier. I know he's out of the bullpen, but he's kind of always been in that Tanner Houck hybrid mode. Um, the, the, the role that they've used with him. I know he had a, a four-inning save. He threw over 100 innings, so, you know, he's not 
a starter per se, but he's kind of that fifth guy that I think they'll go to if a pitcher, if a starter goes out early in games, he's almost kind of like an additional starter that they have. Um, he made five starts earlier in the season. And just, I think in general, a lot of their pitchers have just a deep repertoire of three, four, five pitches. Um, you know, Urquidy has pitches moving in all different directions. So I think they really, they don't have super hard throwers in the rotation, but they have guys with a, a deep arsenal that kind of mix and match and have pitches going in different directions. Yeah, and I think that's a good point about um, Javier because, I mean, we've seen that the the Red Sox um, show this more than anybody that these sort of, like you said, the Tanner Houks, Nick Pavetta was that guy in the last role. I mean, these guys are can be more important than the starters. So, um, yeah, that's a good call. What about you, Keaton? Yeah, I think that stands out to me is, you know, similar to the Rays, um, kind of I think we've touched on all the names, but they have a lot of guys with, like, less than one year service time or like right at a year of service time, a bunch of young starters, but they all have an extended amount of experience in the playoffs. Unlike the, the Rays young pitchers, uh, all four of those guys, Valdez, Garcia, Javier, and Urquidy were on the playoff roster for the Astros a year ago and already got a bunch of experience playing in the playoffs and in an ALCS against a tough team. So where we thought we may have an advantage or kind of be able to build on the success that we had against young pitchers against Tampa Bay, not exactly the same same crop of young guys that the Astros are throwing at us as they already have playoff experience and kind of, you know, the, we've, the Red Sox have already seen them, like you pointed out, during the regular season and got shut down. So um, this is not going to be uh, an easy series, which is kind of just the theme that I keep coming back to. <laughs> Not that we expected it at this point it to be easy, but it's just it feels like the worst possible matchup for the Red Sox because yeah. this this team just knows how to exploit everything the Red Sox do poorly, um, and they're good at exploiting it. So it's was really open for Chicago because I thought they matched up a lot better against them. Not that that would have been an easy series either, but it's just from the offense to the pitching, this the Red Sox really need to kind of play sound, mistake free baseball and i don't know if they're capable of doing that for an extended period of time <laughs> so it's gonna be tough pretty sure they're not they were mistakes <laughs> yeah. in that race <laughs> so um, yeah yeah i mean that's that is a good point and yeah this um the astros are good and i mean so bob talked about their bullpen or mentioned their bullpen a little bit and this is if there is a weak spot on the roster um i guess it would be here in the bullpen um, they don't have, they don't have the names that I think um, you typically expect from bullpens this time of year. I mean, the White Sox, the one edge that I thought they very clearly did have, obviously, was um, just the big names in the back of their bullpen. But uh, Houston doesn't really have that, but they do have a couple of very good arms late in games, and Ryan Presley and Kendall Graveman, and then a bunch of other guys who can, who certainly have the stuff to pitch up and I mean these guys are no slouches but Ryan Stanek um Brooks Farrelly uh Bob meant Javier mentioned Javier Yumi Garcia was a guy that I think we all wanted Keaton especially wanted at the deadline um Phil Matone I mean these guys I don't want to put any disrespect on these names because they're good relievers and the Red Sox certainly have uh nothing really to brag about in their bullpen but um I think if there is a silver lining to the series it's that maybe the late innings won't be as grinding as they were against tampa or maybe they would have been against chicago um i don't know what do you think Ian? 
Yeah, I think it's pretty top-heavy. I mean, Presley, Graveman, and Garcia are the ones that stick out to me. Probably, I mean, I'm assuming Javier wouldn't be used in just like a one-inning thing, but I don't know, maybe he will. But I think where the Red Sox are going to have a window is if they're able to drag out at bats against the starters and get them pulled in like the fifth and sixth before they turn it over to that bottom three and then take advantage in that small window. I think it's going to have to be the approach there. And I think that is something that this team is capable of doing. They can drag out at bats. They can make guys work. Uh, and we saw them do that against the Rays, which is a really good team, really good pitching staff. So I think that's going to be the key. They, I mean, it's we also saw them be really aggressive in the last game against the Rays, and it worked out pretty well for the most part, um, you know, getting five runs in an inning um, and coming back there in the ninth. But I think the – more sound approach would be to try and wear on the starters and rack up their pitch counts and get them out of the game and try and take advantage of those transition guys in like the fifth, sixth, and maybe seventh. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think um, obviously historically that's what the Red Sox are kind of known for, and I think that's the importance of that has dropped, and it certainly wasn't as important in the race series where the starters aren't going deep either way, but I think I yeah. think that's a good point where if you're trying to get to this bullpen and again these aren't like horrible pitches or anything they're just not maybe not as scary as the starters and the rest of this roster um i think that makes sense what about you bub yeah i i think you know in game one i'm kind of repeating myself here but not allowing valdez to get to the seventh inning something like that because with these built-in off days guys like hauk and guys like javier who i think will be the key to you know bridging the gap to um, Graveman and Presley, you can reset a little bit with that off day in between. You know, if you throw a guy in game one, you can then throw him in game three, five, and seven with the built-in off days, that kind of thing. So I think they'll they'll utilize Javier a lot, but the other names, you know, you look at their numbers, you look at their peripherals. You know, I know they did trade for Yimi Garcia, but he was over five after he got there, and he gave up four runs in the game the other night, and I just think that they have people that you can take advantage of. So, yeah, working counts, having just good veteran at-bats is going to be really important. And, um, you know, hopefully they can get one of the first two starters out early and, and take a game in, in Houston as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the working at-bats thing, um, like he was talking about the starters, important. I think it's important with the bullpen, too, not so much in terms of getting them tired, although that's obviously never a bad thing, but... Um, these aren't exactly like control freaks over in Houston. You got Garcia and Presley both um, have good walk rates. Um, Brooks Raley, he's right around league average, but the rest of this bullpen, I mean, Graveman's at 12% walk rate, um, Matone's at a 10% walk rate, Stanek's at a 13% walk rate, Javier's at a 14% walk rate. I mean, these guys will walk you if you let them. And kind of what I was talking about with the Red Sox earlier, where if they're going bad, um, they're going to swing early in counts. They're going to not take advantage of pitchers like this. So I think it's going to be key that if they are down maybe by a run or something late in the game, they can't let the moment get too big and they can't just start swinging out, swinging out of their shoes at the first pitches and trying to make something happen with one swing. Um, it's th- These are pitchers that will walk you. You just need to have the patience, and that's easier said than done in some of those big moments. But I think, um, I mean, they're obviously going to be in that position a couple times in the series, so they're going to have to really uh, be disciplined. And like I said, it's not something that we've seen from them um, consistently this year in those situations. 
Um, so specifically with the matchups against the Red Sox this year, uh, Boston Houston have played seven times this season. Uh, Houston won five of those games, and I think it's worth noting that these were all played um, 11-day span in June, which is significant um, because that is when the Red Sox were playing very well. That is before the second half when things kind of went downhill very quickly. At that point, they were playing well, and they were playing well going into both of those series. Um, Even in the short time between the series, uh, they won every game they played. So this was the Red Sox what we thought was at their best and Houston still kind of beat up on them. And that's why, um, I mean, Keaton was talking earlier about how this matchup was not the one that he wanted to see. That's very much where I was too, because Houston just, I mean, it looked like they had them handled. And I think to me, I mean, in terms of the matchups, the thing that just keeps standing out and I already talked about, it, I won't spend a lot of time on it. It's just the amount of contact that they make. And with the Red Sox, I mean, that, that is just deadly and it has the, it has the chance to ex- extend some innings and uh, may, even if they don't always get runs off mistakes, just getting some more mileage on these pitchers arms. And that's kind of how they break you down. But um, Bob, anything specifically about those matchups um, that stood out or anything just about, yeah, about the matchup? No, I remember watching those games. And as you said, they were playing, really well they, that was right in the middle of them winning a lot of series in a row and then they lost two I think out of three series um consecutively to Houston and looking back at those box scores you know Urquidy went six innings and Garcia went seven and Valdez went seven and I remember just watching those games thinking we don't match up well with this team I don't want to see this team in October uh and at that time I think Boston probably had the best record in the AL or close to it so I had October in my mind um yeah it was just that was that was my first thought is just that we didn't match up on either side of the ball i remember they won the last game that they played was a a crazy game that was you know 11-9 or something like that and that was the one that had you know no one could figure out the infield fly rule and dusty baker got thrown out and there was just balls deflecting off of it was a wild just out of the ordinary game and that was the only uh game they won in that set so it just none of it felt I never uh, came out of a game thinking, you know, we really dominated that start to finish. It was just like such a grind every inning, and there was a lot of blowouts. Yeah, that was um, that was sort of still at the time where it was shaky whether or not the Red Sox were real, and I guess that question never really got answered. But that was um, we hadn't really seen a lot of evidence to the contrary until that series, and both of those series kind of. Uh, took a little air out of the bag there uh what about you keaton anything specifically that um stands out to you yeah i mean you already hit on it's the contact but it also i think uh makes a huge difference the ballpark the there's so much cheap contact that goes out for homers in the astros ballpark um i can't i can't remember who it was now but somebody tweeted out earlier um the number of home runs less than 360 feet by ballpark and far and away, Minute Maid had the most at 47. Uh, and as a comparison, because I know Fenway has some weird dimensions, they had uh, 15. So it's so almost three times as many in uh, Minute Maid. And then uh, Yankee Stadium was number two, which is also probably expected. But yeah. you can you can Those stats, of course. Yeah, Red Sox as a stats. hitter, <laughs> you can take a mistake and hit a homer in that park. And so just getting the bat on the ball generally means good things are going to happen. And when you have a lineup like 
the Astros that just make a ton of contact in general. And then more specifically, you have a bunch of sample sizes of them or examples of them making a bunch of contact off of you. That's pretty darn tough. So it's them having that, that home park advantage and just being able to turn, you know, weak contact into a lot of runs is difficult, difficult to deal with. The good, the flip side of that, um, the positive spin I guess you could put on that would be that the Astros pitching staff doesn't really strike that many guys out especially their starters so the Red Sox should be able to I mean the Red Sox are playing in the same park too so they should at least um, hopefully be able to take advantage um, I think the thing that I remember the most about that series um, that was the series when Rafael Devers only saw fastballs um, they threw like 60 in a row to him or something outrageous like that. Yes, that's and right. He he got over those issues, but I think we're going to see that again, both because it's already worked for them, um, but also with his injury, um, and Smoltz was talking about this on the broadcast, and as much as I am annoyed by Smoltz sometimes when he's actually like getting in the weeds on baseball, he's he's very good, and he's he pointed something out where he, Devers just was not is having trouble getting to that high fastball with the way uh, that this injury is dealing with him, and he's able to get to the pitches lower in the zone, and he hit a home run on one of them, and that swing is a little bit easier, but when he has to try and catch up with the fastballs up, it is not working right now. So I'm, I'm kind of expecting to see that, and that's going to be a chess match that I'm really looking forward to seeing, and that might be one of the big X factors in the series is just how just how Devers is going to be able to handle that because um, it didn't go very well last time, but he was able to make that adjustment. Um, all right, so we should move on to the Red Sox roster. Um, Red Sox have to submit their roster for the ALCS on Friday. Uh, Peter Rustin wants to know, and I think it's uh, probably the, you know, the big question for the roster is: Are there going to be any changes from the ALDS? Who's going to be left off? Who's going to be added? Um, Bob, we'll start with you. What changes uh, do you think we can expect to the roster for the series? Yeah, I you know it's kind of the easy way out. I'm not. There's nothing that's glaring to me that I think they need to do, especially on the hitting side. I think all of that will be the same. Could a bullpen arm be different because they see some sort of matchup that makes more sense? Like, I mean, I'm not going to be shocked if if Martin Perez isn't on there tomorrow. I don't think they wanted to use him in the last series, um, and they didn't. I think he was just there in a case of emergency, and maybe they just felt they needed another lefty if they feel they need that third lefty maybe they keep him there if not i could see sawamura i could see darwin's in if they feel that he matches up better as a harder throwing reliever than perez um i could see something like that but i i don't see anything that's that's glaring that they need to change i don't i don't know that they would put Duran on instead of santana they would have done it last time so i think it'll be pretty close save for maybe one reliever what about you, Keith? Yeah, Martin Perez is the one for me. I don't get the point of him being on the roster in the playoffs right now. Unless he's – I mean, I don't really understand this either, but unless he's the guy that um, they have on the roster just in case they're getting blown out to get to the end of the game without using innings or pitches from their more important relievers. But I don't get the point of that in the playoffs, and I, I don't like using a roster spot for that. I'd rather them just maximize all of their roster spots and you know feel comfortable using them in whatever situation. So – I would like to see Martin Perez gone. I feel like he was here with the Rays specifically for the matchups um, just because there were so many righty-lefty matchups that they could have played and they, they probably wanted a 
break glass in case of emergency lefty because they just don't have a ton of those on the roster. But I don't think that is a similar situation here with the Astros, so I don't think he should be on the roster. I mean, I totally agree um, as to whether or not he will be on the roster. I'm not quite as confident. Um, but I wouldn't be totally surprised. Some of the beat writers are talking about today, um, Darwinson Hernandez has been getting um, he's been getting some more workouts lately. The last few days he's been working out a little bit more, and um, some have surmised that he might have a spot on the roster. Perez's spot, I think, would make sense. I can't believe I'm the one who has to say this, but I think Matt Barnes's roster spot might also make sense. Um, I, I just don't have any confidence in Barnes right now. He got one appearance in that series, and he did not look very good. I just I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's just going to start over next year. I don't know what he's adding right now. He's certainly not giving you a lot of innings. He's not a guy that you're going to go get three innings from. So if you're only asking for one inning out of a guy, it better be very good. I don't think it's going to be very good from Barnes. I wouldn't be surprised to see him off the roster, whether that is for Hernandez or for Sawamora. Um, Perez off the roster wouldn't really surprise me either just because they didn't use him in the last series. And Like you said, it, it feels like kind of a wasteful roster spot. What I would do, honestly... Um, I would take Barnes off, probably add Darwin's in, but I don't think there's a huge difference between him and Salamore. You could talk me into either one, and I would – we talked about this for the last series too. I would just not have Perez on the roster, and I would not have Santana on the roster, and I would call, um, I would use both Arauz and Duran so I could have – I mean, Santana was – he's there because he can play the infield and he can run. You can just use two roster spots for that and not have to have Danny Santana, who is just not a good Major League Baseball player. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the bench is going to stay the same, and I think I think Barnes is probably going to come off the roster. He wasn't supposed to be in the roster. Last series, he only got put on because Garrett Richards got hurt, and he did not do well in his one chance. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Barnes off the roster, and I, I think it would be the right move. I don't know, um, Keaton, if you agree or if you would still keep him there for the upside. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I feel if it comes down to him or Martin Perez, I feel slightly more comfortable with him. But yeah, I mean, he's not in a good spot right now. And now's not the time to, you know, try and tweak him or figure out what's going wrong. Because you don't really have any wiggle room, even if you're just throwing him out there for an inning. So it seems like he would be more of like a there's two outs and you have a guy coming up so you only need to get one out out of him and then you can swap him out in the next inning but there's got to be better options than that than just holding him in for like that particular situation and the trouble with Barnes is he relies so much on the strikeout and I mean like we've talked about a million times this Astros team doesn't strike out a lot um which is which would also kind of scare me away from Darwinson um but I don't know Bob what do you think Darwinson might be a good matchup for uh, Jordan Alvarez because he's the only one who has a significant strikeout rate and he might be their best hitter. Um, so that might be a better option than... I just don't see them carrying four lefties. So... Yeah. <laughs> and then if you add Darwinson and Sawamura, they both have walk rates that are, I don't know, six and seven per nine. So I don't think they would add both of those guys. I totally get your point. And it's if you're if it's coming down to 
the Barnes or Sawamura on the roster to decide yeah. the series, it's probably not a good thing either. Um, There's bigger issues. Out yeah, there but sure. I could I could see the man Darwin's in for for Alvarez to kind of get another. You know, if his velocity is up, we talked about that last time that that was down at the end of the year. If that's up a little bit, I could see him being a good matchup. But again, you got to use him for three, so you got to kind of um, yeah. you know two outs, nobody on kind of thing. Yeah, that's that is a new wrinkle, and I I do like that rule. Um, I, I do think kind of Josh Taylor, he should be used against lefties um, primarily, but I think he's good enough where he's, he's I don't think he's a lefty specialist at least, um, whereas like Austin Davis and Darwinson would be guys that I would consider um, more of a lefty specialist. But moving the attention um, over to the rotation, I think we know all the starters are going to be there, the four guys of Aldi Sale. Rodriguez, Pavetta, what we don't know quite yet is how they're going to line up. Obviously, these guys just, I mean, their usage was all over the place um, in the ALDS, as will be the case, moving forward as needed. But um, I, mean, I don't know what we're expecting. How do you, how do you think they're going to line up the rotation, Bob? I, well, I think Evaldi's going to pitch game one. I do think Sale is going to pitch game two, and I think that, Whoever is needed more out of Erod and Pavetta in those first two games, you know, whoever throws a more significant number of innings will pitch game four, and whoever either isn't needed or throws less will throw game three. Um, and I think that that is completely subject to change and probably will when a game goes into extra innings and we see all hell break loose again, or <laughs> if Sale throws another dud, you know. Um, I do think the sale in the playoffs narrative has bothered me a little bit because before that game two, he only got blown up one other time in the playoffs, and that was by Houston in 2017 on their field. And we don't need to go over that story again from that year. But, I mean, he has pitched well in all of his other playoff games until the other day where... I don't know. To me, it just seemed like they had thrown him on four days rest coming off of surgery so many times in a row that he just started to get burnt out a little bit. And I'm hoping that seven or eight days off, whatever he had, can kind of reset him. And we know the way Core is. He's going to let everybody know that he believes in them and that we're going to need you at a certain time. And I just see him giving Sale the ball in game two. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely going to be the most the most interesting storyline from this this first weekend of the first two games in Houston. Um, what about you, Keaton? How do you see it? Yeah, no, that's exactly how I see it. Uh, Ivaldi going game one, Sale going game two, then probably Erod and Pavetta, um, assuming that you don't need to try and, let's <laughs> Bob said, like use one, all hell breaks loose in the uh, in extra innings at some point. But I think that's how they're going to at least line it up and then hope it plays out the way that, you know, they needed to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably how it's going to go. Um, Jen McCaffrey had a tweet uh, from Alex Core's press availability um, where Core was asked if Sale's going to start or leave in the series, and uh, Core just said he'll pitch. Um, again, I think that's, like I said a little bit earlier with the Astros, I think that's just teams are not going to show their hand before they have to, and why would they? Um, and he, I think he probably will start, but oof. I would be very tempted to just kind of try and roll with three starters and you sail out of the bullpen and see what you can kind of piece together. Um, ultimately, I think the real answer is 
it's not really worth <laughs> trying to map out more than one game at a time uh, because we have no idea how this is going to go. I mean, this um, we saw last we saw last series and we saw in 2018. Uh, the, Alex Gore is going to use his pitchers when he needs when he needs to use them, regardless of what the starting plan may have been. So. Um, I think this is truly what it's going to be sort of a game to game thing, but ultimately yeah. I think you guys are right. We'll, we'll probably see Evaldi game one sale game two, unless they absolutely need sale out of the bullpen in game one. But um, that's probably not going to be the case. Um, so we talked a little bit about the bottom part of the Red Sox bullpen, but obviously more important is the late inning guys. Um, what are we seeing as we talked before the ALDS about the circle of trust with this bullpen? Who's in it right now? Garrett Whitlock's obviously in it, and we'll talk about his role um, in a minute more specifically, but just more broadly in terms of who is trusted in these situations. Um, Keaton, who's in the circle of trust? I still think Robles is there, uh, even though he, you know, he had that hiccup. But um, apparently he was sick and not feeling well, so I feel like it's easy to kind of write that off um, as I'm taking them at their word. Uh, Hauk, definitely there. Uh, and those are probably the three that I feel the strongest about. Um, maybe Josh Taylor, too. But I know that he's going to be used in kind of a bunch of different roles. But for, like, those last, the eighth and ninth, it's really just Robles and Whitlock right now, which I don't feel great about, but they've also both been really good. <laughs> So, yeah, Robles. As much as I would like to uh, get on him about that one start, because I'm still nervous every time, or one outing, I'm still nervous every time he takes them out. Um, it was just one bad outing. Uh, there was one notable yeah. omission. I'm curious if Bob will have him in there. Uh, Bob, who's in your circle? Is his nickname Big Fudge? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know about Austin Davis being big fudge. All right. Um, I had seen I had seen people saying big, big fudge, and I was too afraid to ask because I didn't want to be the <laughs> cool guy who had to ask. And now you just made me do that on a I'm podcast. Sorry. So you can you cut it much. out if you want. You probably didn't want to Google it either because I don't know what would have come up. I'm absolutely not googling the phrase big fudge. <laughs> I'm sticking with it. He only threw eight pitches and walked the guy and got a fly out. He didn't look great, but. Um, I can't take Brazier and Robles out just yet. They both had pretty miserable outings and very similar outings, right? I don't know whether either guy retired more than a batter and gave up two or three runs. So uh, I still got Whitlock, Hauk, Brazier, Robles, Taylor, and uh, until I see otherwise, I'm, I'm sticking with Mr. Davis. Um, I think that's probably right. I, I'm not there with uh, Big Fudge, um, Mr. Fudge. Um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's matchup specific. If, like you were saying earlier, if there's two outs and a lefty coming up, absolutely. Um, Davis against a lefty, that is, I'm I'm fine with that. I don't want him facing any righties, um, which I think limits limits how you can use him because of the three batter rule, and that's why I think Josh Taylor, to me, um, and you had him in the circle, but to me, he is clearly the top lefty in this bullpen. He's a guy who I also really want to face lefties, but if it's say they have two lefties do up with a righty in between i'm fine using taylor for that situation i trust him enough against righties to be okay with that um but other than that i think it's it's how you had it it's it's whitlock it's Hauk, it's robles it's brazier those last two still scare me but they've pitched well enough um outside of their last outings and brazier specifically had just been used a ton 
uh, before that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think these bullpens are kind of very similar. I think the Astros have maybe a better one-two punch, although I think Whitlock and Hoke, I don't think it's that far off. I don't know, Bob, what do you think? Just top two if you go Whitlock-Hoke versus um, Presley and Graveman. Yeah, I just don't think that Hoke is going to... I mean, he might pitch late in games because kind of depends on the game script, but I just don't know that he'd be like the eighth inning guy. I feel like they're going to want to throw him as a long guy, and then he would get a day off after that. You know, if you're throwing him as the eighth and Whitlock in the ninth, then that is ideal, and that's the way I would draw it up if you can get a starter to go into the seventh. So, yeah, no, I I would say it's in that order. I just, I don't know. I, and kind of, you know, to go along with that, I just would rather they, if they think they can use Whitlock for two innings, I would like him to start the eighth inning. I don't want to wait until the tying run is scored or on third to bring him in. It's like, if he can go two, let's do that. Get the game today. Yes. And that was, I mean, that was my big pet peeve with that great series. And Cora, I mean, to me, Cora, he has played, he has managed a lot of these um, games very, very well. But the Whitlock situation in particular has just been mind-boggling. And I thought he got um, bailed out on each of those last two games. Um, I don't. Maybe they don't want to use Whitlock for two winnings all the time, um, especially if they're planning on using him or having him available back to back days. I get that he's a young guy coming off Tommy John. Yeah. Um, you got to worry about the future. I can understand that. You at least need to let him face the best hitters. You can't save him for the ninth inning. This is not Craig Kimbrell. This is not a guy who's been um, only pitching the ninth inning for the last 15 years or whatever. I mean, he was a starting pitcher until this year. Um, it's not like he's locked into any role. And he he's by far the best reliever in this bullpen. I don't think anybody is in the same area code as Whitlock in terms of how much I trust them right now. And this Astros lineup is too good. Um, to not have him facing the best hitters um, no matter when it's coming up. You cannot give Hansel Robles an appearance in the eighth inning just because it's the eighth inning. So, um, I don't know, Keith, what do you think? This Is Whitlock just a ninth inning guy? Is this is this something we should expect? Is this something that Core is doing well, something he's doing bad? I mean, what do you think about the Whitlock usage? Yeah, I don't think he's just going to be a ninth inning guy. Um, I think, I mean, if it plays out that way, then then yeah, but I, I don't think Cora um, likes having one guy dedicated to only the ninth inning, particularly when he's your best reliever, because there's going to be situations where you need to go to him for two innings or you need to go to him in the eighth, maybe even the seventh, if that's where the you know the danger is with the heart of the order. But I think that's what Cora has been really good at. Um, you know, We talk about how good he is kind of with the matchups on the offensive side, but he's also really good at mix and matching his bullpen for the needs of the game and how, however it's flowing, going to the right guys in the right situations. It's uncomfortable as it may feel to see like Brazier and Robles up there in those high leverage situations. They've done really well, no matter if it was in the seventh inning or later. So I don't think he wants to feel like he has his guys capped those individual roles. Cause then that, that kind of handicaps him and his usage. So I wouldn't expect to see Whitlock in just the ninth inning. And if, if we do see that, I think that's just by chance. I mean, I would normally agree with that. I mean, that's sort of what we saw in the last series. And I think probably the truth of the matter is that Cora just felt that good about Robles uh, more than anything and wanted him to face those batters, I guess, for matchup reasons. I don't know. Um, I don't know what you think, Bob. I mean, does 
I don't know what you thought about the last series or what that might uh, portend going forward for Whitlock. What, in terms of whether they would just exclusively use him in the ninth, you mean? I mean, that's sort of the vibe that I got in the last series was with what they were doing. I mean, they were. Yeah. That was their plan, what it seemed like, anyways. Right. Um, I know. I, I think if, as you said, he kind of got bailed out. If they lose. Even if he comes in, I mean, he threw, what, 15 pitches in two innings in the second game or something? It was I've never seen anything yeah. like that. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's great that he's super efficient. I don't think that you can, can count on that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, as you said, you bring him in for the biggest outs. I think that if he had gotten through those and they lost both of those games in extra innings, which easily could have happened, that that would have been the exact thing that we were pointing at in this po- wrap-up podcast to say, why did we go to Robles? Why did we go to Brazier if Whitlock was available for two innings? So uh, hopefully he learns from that. I could easily see him coming in in the seventh or eighth and then closing with whoever's left if they're at the bottom of the lineup, which, of course, we know doesn't really matter. But, um, you know, I think, you know, you could see him come into a super high leverage situation in the seventh and then pitch the eighth and then someone else pitch the ninth. So I don't think he's the exclusive closer. I just think you, um, you know, if you can draw it up perfectly, he is. I agree with you. I, I think I don't know what Cora's deal was, but I'm assuming he'll step out of it. He's um, he's too good of a manager to keep doing that yep. stuff. Um, all right, let's get to some some wrap up thoughts, some predictions. Uh, we'll start with uh, keys to the series. Uh, Keaton, where are you going? Oh man, um, I think it's just kind of reiterating what we talked about: just the hitters being patient, drawing out long at bats, and, and getting their starters out of the game so they can hand it over to a softer spot um, in their pitching staff. Uh, and then offensive or for Red Sox pitchers, I think it's um, just you have to attack the zone and, and be aggressive because these guys aren't going to draw walks. So you're either going to have to run them into outs by contact or get the strikeouts and getting this, go doing it the strikeout way is going to be tough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about you, Bob? Yeah, I, I think, as Keaton said, I'd just be reiterating points that we made a lot. You know, just trying to work work counts, um, get stars to go deep into the game um, on our side, and trying to not allow a pitcher into the seventh inning and getting straight to Graveman and Presley. Um, I think 2-3-2, two, two, the format is totally different when you get to the ALCS. You know, getting a game in Houston is huge because you then get three in a row at home and even if you get two of those games, you're going into a closeout game in game six. You know, that's a long three days where they play without an off day when it comes back to Boston. And, you know, if they can get a game in Houston, and uh, we've seen what that crowd is like. I mean, they've been incredible. Houston has a great crowd as well. Um, you know, as long as that crowd is not uh, accusing anybody on Houston of cheating, I'd like for us to, you know... <laughs> look ourselves in the mirror going into the stadium next week but <laughs> it's not gonna happen <laughs> there might be a little hypocrisy in there either. but um yeah no i i just think i think that two three two is you forget about it until you look at the schedule and see how how that lines up and you can't you can't just pull everybody after an inning or two in a seven game series you can do that in a five and you have to kind of play the long game a little more in a seven game series yeah um I hate two three two. I mean, it works out in the Red Sox favor, I think, because I think it favors, or it doesn't give us enough of an advantage, in my opinion, to the uh, to the home team. But 
Um, the Red Sox are not the home team, so that's good right. for us. Um, to me, the key is the defense um, for the reasons that we've talked about. The Astros just put everything in play, and the Red Sox need to catch the baseball. They need to throw the baseball. I mean, they need to do the basics well because this Astros offense is deep, so if you give them extra base runners, they will make you pay for it. And the Red Sox bullpen is not very good, um, at least not in terms of where they are in the calendar right now. It's not where you want it to be. You want the starters to be going deep into games and you don't want to be adding extra pitches onto their arms by uh, making errors, giving extra bats to the Astros. Um, to me, I mean, that's what it comes down to. We've seen this defense obviously has its issues, but we've seen them also play very well. I mean, Rafael Devers is sort of the face of that. Um, he is not a great defensive player, but for a month, two months, three months at a time, he'll play like he's uh, Nolan Arenado Jr. out of nowhere. So we kind of need the defense to pull one of those moves and um, play extremely well in the series because if they don't, um, I think this could be over quickly. Um, all right, I mean, X-Factors, I guess, maybe the same thing, but maybe more specific players. Uh, Bob, anything anything for you in terms of X-Factors? Uh, I'm going to say Tanner Houck on the Red Sox side. I think that he's going to be such an important part. I think he, in the seven-game series, could pitch in in four games, um, you know, either game one or game two, and then you throw him in three and five at home, and uh, then an off day. You know, I could just see him being heavily involved. I mean, the dude threw a perfect game over uh, three or four outings, which is just incredible. Um, so... And I think it ended up being 10 shutout innings. And, you know, they're not going to let him go more than two times through the order, but he was so valuable in that series. And, you know, I think if he's rolling, it's just especially if you start the game with with a left-handed pitcher, or, you know, he comes in after sale and he just gives you that look from the other side. It's just a different look that people don't see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, I mean, we saw, we saw how big that sort of long relief appearance can be after he came in for sale the last time. Uh, what about you, Keaton? I'm going to go with the same two that I had for the ALDS, which actually kind of leads into what Bob just said. But Chris Sale is the first one, what you're able to get out of him, uh, which then kind of leads into Tanner Houck and what his usage may end up being. But um, only getting, you know, what was it, an inning? Inning and two-thirds out of him in the – one inning in the, the DS. It's just not enough. And the, the fact that the Red Sox were able to overcome that on the backs of those other guys, we just need more from him. Um, it makes everything much more difficult if he's not – you know, he doesn't even need to be like vintage Chris Sale, but just be able to get deeper into games while being effective, um, which is, is is a weirdly low bar that we're setting for a guy like Chris Sale. <laughs> so uh, even coming back from injury. And then the other piece of it is the bottom of the order. Um, in all three games that the Red Sox won against the Rays, the bottom of the order showed up and more specifically had the, you know, the biggest hits of the series in games three and four. Uh, in the one game that they lost, the bottom of the order was two for 11 and over with guys in scoring position. Um, when the Red Sox offense has been frustrating, it's largely been because the black hole at the, the bottom of the order. Um, but when it's going strong, then they can kind of get going against really any pitching staff. So I think that gets ratcheted up a little bit as we've talked about how difficult navigating this pitching staff is going to be, and they're really going to have to kind of pick and choose their uh, their spots. But the bottom of the order, I think, is going to need to show up. Yeah, I have I have two, and they're sort of both along that same line. Um, Hunter Renfro, I think, is one. Renfro wasn't bad in the ALDS, but he wasn't really 
hitting for power. It wasn't really the offensive Hunter Renfro that um, we've kind of gotten used to. I think we, the Red Sox could really use a return to that guy, um, give some thump in the bottom of the order. Guys like Kike Hernandez are probably not going to play as well as they did in the ALDS. If they did, that would be awesome, but um, probably not going to happen. So going to need to find that production somewhere else. I think Renfro can pick up some of that slack. Um, the other guy is sort of a deeper cut. Um, Travis Shaw, the Astros bullpen is very righty heavy. Um, they only carried one lefty in the ALDS. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of situations. I mean, maybe once a game where you have somebody like Christian Vasquez, Kevin Pulecki, Christian Arroyo, whoever it may be, one of these bottom of the lineup righties um, going up against one of the big righties in Houston's bullpen. And Travis Shaw is going to have a few chances to make big swings. He's only going to get one plate appearance a game, but they're going to be big ones every time. So I think um, given how right-handed heavy that bullpen is and that he's the only lefty on the bench, I could see him being a hero if things break well uh, for the Red Sox. Obviously, it's a very small role, but it could be an important one. Um, All right, let's finish it out with... uh, We'll put this together with series predictions and MVP. Um, Keaton, why don't you get us started? Oh, man. Um, MVP, I'm going to go Native Valdi. And series prediction... Uh, Astros at six. Bob? Yeah, I was going Astros in six as well, and it worked last time, so I'll keep it consistent. Um, you know, if we're talking Sox MVP, if they won the series, I would say Bogarts. If it's, um, if it's an Astro, I will say Carlos Correa, and I will hate every second of it. Ugh, you stole my answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um... I'm going to make it a clean sweep. Um, maybe that's the bad juju because I was the only one that predicted the Red Sox the last time. But um, I, I can't bring myself to do it even under the same circumstances where it really doesn't matter. Um, if I get it wrong, nothing bad will happen to me. But um, I just think the Astros are so much better, and this matchup is so bad. I'm going Houston in five. Um, I didn't even really think about a Red Sox MVP, to be honest, because I don't really see them winning the series. I guess if I picked one, it would be Devers, maybe, because he's very good at baseball. Um, But Correa was the guy that I was thinking as well, but I'll switch it up. I'll go with Kyle Tucker. Um, He killed the Red Sox those last times they played earlier in the season, so I could see him uh, doing that again. But, yeah, I agree. Um, Houston, it's not looking good. Um, All right, we got one more listener question, which was actually a trivia question. Um, And so... I know the answer. They don't. Uh, John DeCoste says, uh, "Who's the only batting? Uh, who's the only player to win a batting title in three different decades?" Uh, Bob, you said you had a guess. My guess is George Brett because I'm thinking. I think of those late '70s Yankees series and his prime in the '80s, and then I remember him when I was growing up in the '90s. Still, you know, and he competed for 400 a couple times. So that's my thought. Bob, you nailed it. Get out of here. It is George Brett. It is George Brett. Um, <laughs> I swear I didn't look. I think you cheated. I, I, I think I think you're celebrating this ALCS and you cheated uh, for the trivia question. I had to, I had to throw one one of those cheating references up. Was it about the Red Sox or the Astros? I'll never tell. 
All right, uh, that is a good place to end it. We've been talking for long enough, and I'm being stupid now. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed this show, this ALCS preview. Um, if you did, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can leave us a rating and review as well, if that is applicable on that platform. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I run the Over the Monster account at Over the Monster. Keaton is at The Spoken Keats, and Bob is at Bob Osgood15. And uh, you can keep up with all of our writing uh, throughout the series at OverTheMonster.com. And uh, we're going to be back with you after every game, just like last time. So uh, definitely stay tuned to this feed, and uh, we'll see you then.